Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. In today's episode, I'm talking about Julie Dash's 1991 film, Daughters of the Dust. This is a dreamlike film that focuses on the Pazant family, and it's set in the year 1902. The family lives on the Sea Islands off the coast of the Carolinas. They gather together for one last time on the eve of their departure from the island. Many of them plan on moving to the mainland and going north for better jobs and more opportunity. Dash centers and celebrates the black women of the family, from the elderly matriarch Nana to the pregnant Eula to the daring Yellow Mary. Daughters of the Dust is a stunning cinematic achievement that looks at the bonds of family, the ghosts of history, and the rich lives of African-American women. Dash has the distinction of being the first black woman to direct a feature film that was distributed in movie theaters. I talk all about this gorgeous film, including the grueling process of getting it made, and I also use an interview between Julie Dash and the feminist scholar Bell Hooks as a roadmap through the different themes and subjects that the film explores. I absolutely adore this film, and I hope that you like this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's P-A-T-R-E-O com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. I love your reviews. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode all about Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust. of the dust for years now. I saw this film a few years ago. Absolutely fell deeply, madly in love with it. I have such reverence for this film. I'm so glad that in the last few years, because of Beyonce's Lemonade, which came out in 2016, around the 25th anniversary of Daughters of the Dust, Beyonce included imagery that is similar to Daughters of the Dust. And those of you who have seen that work of art, I think Lemonade is, it's this visual album basically, right? It's like this film with the songs from the Lemonade album incorporated into it. And there's several moments in Lemonade that pay homage to Daughters of the Dust. And I think that Beyonce definitely helped give Daughters of the Dust maybe more widespread attention and and give that to Julie Dash as well. And Julie Dash herself saw Lemonade and loved it. I'm 
pretty sure I had seen Daughters of the Dust before Lemonade came out. So I have been in love with this film for a really long time. I just have a deep appreciation and reverence for it. I do worry that I won't be able to do it justice in this episode. I hope that I can. I also wanted to cover this film in 2020 for very important reasons. All of us know what has been going on this year in 2020. It's been a very complicated, explosive year in a lot of ways. Black Lives Matter as an organization really was birthed in 2013 after George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. And that's when this organization started. It's very decentralized though. There's not like one central Black Lives Matter. It's something that's you have organizations all throughout the country. Black Lives Matter is an important movement. It's one that I certainly believe in and that I support. I support Black Lives. I support Black artists, Black filmmakers, Black film in general, Black writers, everything, all of it, and Black Lives as well. Obviously, that's something that's important to me. I have tried to bring attention to some different Black films that I love, like Moonlight by Barry Jenkins and Losing Ground by Kathleen Collins. And I recently saw a really great film called Cane River by Horace B. Jenkins that I was so amazed by. And I love Ramel Ralsa's Hell County this morning, this evening. Love Daughters of the Dust, obviously. Leslie Harris's Just Another Girl on the IRT. Eve's Bayou is another really great film. There's so many wonderful black filmmakers and black films out there. I will definitely continue to spotlight and champion black filmmakers as much as I can on my small little platform and certainly on my social media. I try to do that and I try to watch films created by black filmmakers. I'm certainly not perfect. There's always room for improvement and room for growth, but I do try to engage with stories by people of different races, different ethnicities, different backgrounds from me. I think that that is an important aspect of cinema, is that you're, for an hour and a half or two hours, you're walking in the shoes of another person right? And I'll talk a bit more about that in my like film analysis or a little bit more in this section about how that's what Daughters of the Dust does really, is that it puts us in the subjectivity and in the lives of black women for close to two hours and how radical that is right? Incredibly radical. I wanted to cover Daughters of the Dust, particularly in 2020, because of the events surrounding George Floyd's death and the rise of Black Lives Matter even more in 2020. It was already very popular and people knew about Black Lives Matter, but it's grown even larger in 2020, right? And I thought this was just the perfect year to talk about this film because it does so many important things. I feel like it's both a political film, obviously, because it is very radical in centering Black women and their lives and their thoughts and all of that. Um, But it's also just a work of art. It is a masterpiece. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Like when I was watching this film, it just, and I had already seen it, but I got the blue Blu-ray 
I wanted to do as much research as I could for this episode. And the main research that I did was first a book that's called Daughters of the Dust. And it has a section that Julie Dash wrote in. And it also has a section uh, that includes an interview between the feminist writer and scholar Bell Hooks and Julie Dash that happened in the early 90s after the film was released. It includes the script of the film. It even includes some recipes by the Gullah community. I think like recipes that are very popular. It's a wonderful book and a lot of my research came from it. A lot of my quotes will come from it. I absolutely loved reading it. It was a wealth of information. I think if you love Daughters of the Dust, you should absolutely get your hands on that book. I got it like on eBay. I don't think it was very expensive because that conversation between Bell Hooks and Julie Dash is amazing. I'm going to refer to it throughout my film analysis and throughout this episode. It raised so many important issues. I love Bell Hooks. She's one of my favorite feminist writers. I studied women's and gender studies in college and I have, I double majored in it. So I have a bachelor of arts degree in women's and gender studies as well as literature. When I was taking my feminist classes, my women's studies classes, we read a lot of bell hooks and she was a really big deal to me. We even read her in one of my literature classes too because she writes poetry, she's written memoirs, she's, she's written all kinds of things. She is a powerhouse and her, her writing has shaped a lot of what I think. I loved Audre Lorde and just so many amazing women that I read in those classes. But Bell Hooks was like a really big deal to me. So it was really wonderful to read the interview she had with Julie Dash in that book. So definitely recommend that to you. And I also picked up the Blu-ray by Cohen Media. Cohen Media is the distributor of Daughters of the Dust now. That company is the one that did the restoration for the 25th anniversary. And this Blu-ray was stunning. It's the first Blu-ray that I've ever watched. (laughs) I know that sounds crazy. Earlier this year, like a few months ago, I got the Criterion Collection box set of Agnes Varda's films. They released her entire filmography, basically. Like it's 15 Blu-ray discs. And it's also like, I think a 200 page book or something like that. I wanted it (laughs) as soon as I heard about it. And then I realized that all of it was going to be on Blu-ray, that they weren't going to offer a DVD version. Sometimes they'll do that with their films. There'll be a Blu-ray and a DVD version. Well, all I've ever had for a lot of my cinephile life which is about the past decade. I became a hardcore cinephile in 2011. All I've used is DVDs because I have a regular PC laptop and the the drive in it only plays DVDs. So I had never watched a Blu-ray in my life. When I found out about this Agnes Varda box set, she's such an important director to me that I knew that I wanted to have this box set. I don't really own any other box sets. I have the Christoph Kishlovsky Three Colors Blue box set and that's like the only other one that I own. (laughs) But when I saw that this Varda box set was going to be released, I had to have it. So I bought an external Blu-ray drive (laughs) so that I could watch the Blu-rays. And you just, um, you use a USB cord to plug it into your laptop. And so I got this external Blu-ray drive and then I downloaded special software so that I could watch Blu-rays. And I found out that Daughters of the Dust was on Blu-ray and I knew I was going to do this episode about 
about it. On the Blu-ray, there's a lot of extra features. And so I decided to just get the Blu-ray of Daughters of the Dust instead of the DVD so that I could get the, the full features on it and stuff. And I'm really glad that I chose the Blu-ray because the restoration and the quality is out of this world. I mean, for this is the first Blu-ray I've ever watched. I haven't started to watch the Varda films yet. I have three episodes about Agnes Varda films. I have one about Vagabond, another about Cleo from 5 to 7, and another one about The Gleaners and I, if you want to check those out. I definitely have plans to do more episodes about Varda's work because I want to, of course, and I'm going to use the box set to create those episodes. I want to talk about her films about Jacques Demy. Like, there's a lot more Varda I want to cover for those of you who listen. So, I just haven't explored it yet. I've just had a lot going on. I think all of you know how difficult 2020 has been with this pandemic. So, really, the first Blu-ray that I watched was Daughters of the Dust. I highly recommend the Blu-ray if you can get your hands on it or if you're able to play Blu-rays. I had to go through a lot (laughs) to make it happen, but it was worth it because this film is just a visual feast. It is breathtaking. It is just on another level. So I'm really, really glad that I bought the Blu-ray instead of the DVD because the quality is crystal clear. (laughs) I'm having trouble putting it into words and I'll try to do better when I'm actually doing the film analysis and stuff. But this film is such a work of art. It is such a masterpiece. It was a dream. It was an absolute dream. I've been going through a period recently where I'm not really into watching films. I go through periods like this. I'll go through periods where I'm really obsessed with cinema and I watch films constantly. And then I'll go through periods where I don't want to watch anything. (laughs) Like I'm listening to a lot of music or I'm reading books, right? Or I'm looking at art and I'm just, my mind is activated by other forms of art and I'm just not really into films. And I kind of watched this during that period because I still do these episodes every month and you know I have to watch the film to record these episodes even though I wasn't in a film mood right I just wasn't really in that headspace watching this film was like just entering a dream and I was just so in love with it (laughs) like I was in love with every moment of this and if I repeat myself I'm sorry but this is one of those films that reminded me why I love cinema why I love film. It is that magnificent and that just perfect. (laughs) It's just perfection, this film. And even though I wasn't in the biggest film mood, I was enraptured and engrossed by this film and just entranced. I mean, I had seen it a few years ago, but I had not seen this restoration. I had not seen it with this crystal clear beauty. And so seeing it in this way, it just, it was like an out-of-body experience. (laughs) As I was watching it, I just feel like I entered the film film and and just became one with this film it just it's like I think when you watch it, it's like this experience that just washes over you. I don't know how, it's like you enter this trance or something when you're watching it. It's such a dream. The imagery and like, oh my gosh, I love this film. I'm so glad I'm talking about it, honestly. I'm really excited to to just talk all about it. So that was, that's my sort of tangent. I just wanted to explain why I chose the film for 2020 because it affirms the value of black lives, right? It affirms the value 
value of black people, the black community, and black women in particular. This film is like a love letter to black women. It shows black women in such a beautiful, rich, complex, you know, stunning way. And I I can only imagine the effect that it's had on black women who have gone to see it and how it has moved them and affected their lives. I know I know just the way it affected me and I'm a white woman. I just wanted I want to do this film justice. I have such reverence for it. And in this year in particular, it's important to talk about this film. It's important to talk about the art created by black people. I just love it. I love this film. I'm happy to be talking about it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the making of the film first and then I'll get into my film analysis which is really going to center around that interview between Julie Dash and Bell Hooks. Julie Dash went through so much to get this film made. She struggled to find funding. She struggled to get a distributor once it was completed. This was a labor of love for her and none of it was easy. Nothing about making this film was easy. As beautiful as it is, it was not easy to create. But first, before I get to the film, I just want to talk a little bit about Julie Dash's life. She was born in 1952 in Long Island City, New York. When she was young, filmmaking really was not even on her radar. She thought she'd become something like a secretary. She says in the book that I referenced about Daughters of the Dust, she wrote, quote, My dreams were also molded by the cinema and television series where the likes of me didn't even exist, unquote. And I think that that says a lot that even when she, I mean, I think Julie Dash is a genius. I think this film is a masterpiece. I think it is criminal and heartbreaking that after she made this film, she was not offered the opportunity and the ability to make 50 more. She should have a vast body of work. She should be able to make any film that she wants to make. That didn't happen to her because she was a black woman right? I mean, let's just be honest here. Let's put it out there. It was because she was a black woman and people were not interested in funding those projects. And she has said as much in interviews that she, the doors did not open wide for her after Daughters of the Dust. She has struggled over the years. She's done some music videos She's done this, she's done that, but she has not been able to make projects at the level of Daughters of the Dust. She's not been given that. Now, I did hear recently that she's going to do a biopic of Angela Davis. Angela Davis was another important feminist that I read in college, and I'm a big fan of Angela Davis, of course. So that'll be really fascinating. I will be very, very interested to see this biopic about Angela Davis by Julie Dash. And it sounds like Angela Davis is going to be heavily involved in that film as well. So that is something to definitely look forward to. And I hope that maybe, maybe this means Julie Dash is going to get more projects, more opportunities, because it's just wrong to me that almost 30 years later, she does not have the body of work that she should have. And she said in an interview on that Cohen Media Blu-ray, there was an interview between her and another woman. She said she has all kinds of projects, like all kinds of things that she's written, very diverse subjects as well that she wants to explore. And she just hasn't been able to get the funding. 
she hasn't been able to make it happen. It's just wrong. It makes me furious. And it's a really good example of the way black women face racism and sexism together. And I think Julie Dash is a is a very good example of that. We have like, you know, white male directors who put out a movie every few years, right? They get all kinds of funding. They get all kinds of opportunities to create a body of work. And here is this woman who creates one of the most beautiful films I've ever laid my eyes on tells such an important story about black women's lives. She doesn't get hardly any opportunities to create the body of work that she should have. It it makes me mad. I mean, it should make all of us furious. So she, even in the beginning of her life, even though she's, to me, this brilliant filmmaker, she didn't even conceive of herself that way. I mean, she didn't even have that interest when she was really young. We we can see in that, like, representation can really limit your life. If you don't see yourself reflected in art, if you don't see people like you doing things like making films or making art, you don't really feel like that's a possibility for yourself. When she was 17, she went with a friend to a cinematography workshop at Studio Museum in Harlem. And she got involved in that workshop and she really enjoyed it. And yet even when she went on to college, she was gonna become a gym teacher. She was still thinking in very practical ways. She went to City College in New York. There was the David Picker Film Institute and she ended up interviewing for it and she got accepted. So she graduated from CCNY with a degree in film production as a result. After that, she moved to Los Angeles. She went to AFI, the American Film Institute, and she was one of the youngest fellows to attend AFI. The idea for Daughters of the Dust really started in 1975, and her own family served as inspiration. It was important for her to really put forth representations of black women that would enter other people's minds. Like, she didn't see the kind of representation that she wanted to see, so she wanted to create that. She wanted to put that in people's imaginations and in the minds of viewers to see black women in white dresses running across a beach. I think that's the way she described it. Like that had not been seen before and she wanted to do that. She was inspired to make this film because of her own family and she wanted to tell this story, you know? She wanted to tell a story that would touch other people and touch the black community and particularly black women. This is really like a vision of the South that has not been seen before. She focuses on the Gullah people and they lived on um, the islands off the coast of the Carolinas. And I think she said also Georgia. And this is not an aspect of the South that we see very often and particularly black people who live in the South. When we think of the South, we tend to think of like the mainland, to think of Georgia, Alabama, of course, the Carolinas, Florida, Mississippi. Like that's the focus, not these islands. We don't think of the Gullah people as much. When I was younger, I did watch a show on Nickelodeon called Gullah Gullah Island and I really loved it. It was one of my favorite shows when I was younger. So I was aware of the Gullah culture a little bit, but it doesn't get a lot of attention. And Daughters of the Dust, because Dash herself is also from that kind of culture, she wanted to represent that. She really wanted to tell a story that had not been told. She was also inspired by um, a series of images by James Vanderzee, and they were these photos of black women, she said, at the turn of the century. So it's all these things. It's these images of black women at the turn of the 20th century 
library. It's her own family, her own culture. It's like a mixture of things. In 1981, she got a Guggenheim grant to do research. Originally, she was going to write a series of films about black women. And then eventually, I think it all kind of coalesced into Daughters of the Dust. She did do a short film called Illusions. I do know that. Instead of making Daughters of the Dust like a short film, she eventually decided to make it a longer feature film. She really enjoyed doing her research. She learned a lot and it was almost like a decade-long process of doing this research, of researching slavery, of researching the Gullah people, of you know all kinds of stuff that she learned about. And she said in the book, quote, the sea islands of the coast of the Carolinas and Georgia became the main drop-off point for Africans brought to North America as slaves in the days of the transatlantic slave trade. It became the Ellis Island for the Africans. It also became the region with the strongest retention of African culture, unquote. These areas are heavily influenced by West Africa the sea islands. Because these islands are isolated from the mainland, the culture has been very well preserved because of that separation. So she wanted to make that her setting and, and make that the where everything revolves on these islands. Because she was doing research and working on the script for so long, a lot happened in her life and she had a daughter while she was writing the film and this affected the script. It inspired her to add in the unborn child into the script. The unborn child narrates a lot of the film. The unborn child is a major part of this film, right? We have Nana, the matriarch of the family who narrates it. And then we also have the unborn daughter. And we didn't have the unborn child until Dash had her own daughter. She completed her research um, in 1985 and she started to write the script, as I said. And she knew that she was up against a lot. She knew that this was a film that people had really not seen before. She knew it was going to be hard to sell it and to get funding for it. It was not what people were used to. And when I read that part of what she wrote about, it wasn't something that people get used to. It really made me think like, what kind of films do we get used to? Like, what does it mean to get used to certain kinds of films and to not be used to other kinds of films. And how does that shape the canon and our ideas about art? There was a recent story in the New York Times about the Criterion Collection and about how there are not a lot of African-American filmmakers in the collection. There's a dearth of them. There's very few. I love Criterion Collection. I I support them. I buy, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays from them and I love what they do. And the Criterion Collection has been a crucial part of my life as a cinephile. I think it does important work when it comes to world cinema and the preservation of world cinema and art house cinema. Very grateful for the Criterion Collection, but there's definitely a problem. And I think there does need to be more African-American filmmakers represented in I think think we can kind of all agree on that, right? And there was this part of the article that I read, and I think it was Peter Becker, who's the president of Criterion Collection. He had seen Daughters of the Dust, and a lot of people have asked, I guess, over the years, why is Daughters of the Dust not in the Criterion Collection? This would be the perfect home for it. Peter Becker said that when he watched it, he didn't understand it. He did not know what he was looking at. And I think... That viewpoint is what a lot of people felt when they saw Daughters of the Dust. A lot of white people, a lot of white critics, white distributors, right? 
what am I looking at? What is this? Because not only is it a black film, it is a film about black women. We do have films about black men. It, throughout the 90s, right? And, you know, throughout the decades, it's even more rare for it to be about black women and almost exclusively about black women. The black men are in it, but they're more on the periphery on the margins, which was by design. And that's what Julie Dash wanted. She wanted the black women to be at the center of the film. And so it doesn't surprise me that Peter Becker said that, right? He didn't he didn't understand what he was looking at. But we have to ask how how does one get to the point where they don't know what they're looking at when they're looking at a black film or a film about black women? That's the problem. It's like why don't you get it? Why are you not open to it? What have you gotten used to about cinema that you're not seeing in this film? Why are you not used to this? Why are we not used to seeing black women on screen? Because there's been so little representation of it. That was a big problem for Dash that she had to deal with when she was trying to get this film funded and distributed is that people didn't get it. They weren't used to it. I think we should always question, like, what are we used to? I think as cinephiles, a lot of us can get into comfort zones. And, you know, you get into like, okay, I just want to watch French cinema, you know, or I want to watch certain types of films or give me my existential you know, crisis and dread with Ingmar Bergman. And you, know, you get into a comfort zone with films. I try to be aware of that. And I try to go outside my comfort zone. And I try to engage with films about people who are different from me. It's important to me to do that, to watch films about people of color, or, you know, people of different cultures. But not everybody does that. Not everybody wants to do that. I think we can all have blind spots as cinephiles, right? And Peter Becker has one. He, I mean, I think he was pretty honest about it, actually. He didn't know what he was looking at. And that's why it's not in the Criterion Collection. So Cohen Media, you know, took it up and they did the restoration. And that's the Blu-ray that I have. Criterion Collection is not the only distributor in the world. There's Milestone Films. There's Kino. Kino actually ended up distributing this in 1992. There is Cohen Media, as I said. There are other distributors and I buy from them and... You know, I enjoy the work that they do. So she went through a lot to raise the money for the film. She got some grants. She even filmed a sample of the film. So it was like, I don't know how long it was. It was like however many minutes. But it was a sample. She used some unused film stocks from Charles Burnett, who was a friend of hers. She went to St. Helena Island for five days and she shot it. She shot some preliminary stuff for the film. And then she had to put her money into editing the sample. And then she used that sample to raise more money to make the actual feature film. She needed a, close to a million dollars. And she the budget for the film was eventually about $800,000, which is not a lot at all. This was a low budget independent film for sure. And she just had trouble getting people to fund it. Like that was such a hard part because they, you know, these Hollywood studios, they have their own vision of what a film about black people should be like. And when she went to these studios, like that's what she encountered. They didn't think that her vision of black life would sell 
they didn't think that black audiences wanted to see her vision of black life. They thought they knew better than she did what black audiences wanted to see. But in 1988, she met Lynn Holst, who became interested in the project. And Lynn Holst worked for American Playhouse. That is how she got the money. American Playhouse funded it with $800,000. And I really, when I heard this story, I really loved that it was a woman helping another woman. And I think sometimes that's the only way we're going to get real substantive change in the film industry or in other industries, you know, for people of color, for minorities, for women, is that it's going to have to be us helping each other, you know, a woman helping another woman and seeing the value of the project and providing the funding for it. So I really love that. Thank you, Lynn Holst, (laughs) for believing in the project. Right before the production was supposed to begin, Julie Dash learned that she was pregnant. But instead of delaying everything, and she had fought like hell to get this film made. She was so, she had such perseverance and determination to make this happen. She was not going to let this stop her. She ended up having an abortion instead of delaying the film further. And she says, I think in that book, she said, quote, daughters would become the child that I would bear that year, unquote. So the film became her child. Right before they filmed, Hurricane Hugo hit. (laughs) So it was like one thing after another. Like she struggled to get funding, struggled to get this and that, and then Hurricane Hugo hits. It was just nuts. So they had to wait for that to, (laughs) to pass. And then they went down there with the crew and the cast and all that to film it. The cinematographer was Arthur Jaffa, and he wanted to shoot the film in natural light. So they had to shoot during the day as much as possible. There's a very important aspect to this film that has to be acknowledged. Not only is this film about black people, it's about darker skinned black people, which we do not see as much. And in an interview, Julie Dash said that she was very frustrated with the way that black skin often looked before Daughters of the Dust. She said that it often looked green and blue, I guess, like in movies or TV series. And she said that was because of Kodak film stock. She started to use Fuji because it gave a broader range. It, it captured a broader range of skin tones. And eventually for Daughters of the Dust, her and Jaffa, or his, his name's Arthur Jaffa, but he goes by AJ. So I'll just use AJ. AJ and Dash ended up using a German film stock. I don't think it exists anymore to shoot the film because they they liked the way that film stock captured black skin. This film is radical in so many ways, and it makes you think of things that you would not normally think about. Like, as a white woman, I don't have to think about how my skin is going to be captured on film. That's not something that white people have had to worry about, but that's something for a very long time that black people had to worry about is that things that were made were not made for them. That this film stock wasn't made with black skin in mind. That just speaks to the way that racism can be embedded in things that you don't even expect and you don't even think about. They had to use the natural light, as I said, basically because they couldn't bring a lot of equipment on the beaches. It was like protected land. So they could not bring a lot of these big lights and all of that. So they had to use natural light. And so they had to shoot 
during the morning and the afternoon, that type of lighting. And on the Cohen Media Blu-ray, there's a really great interview with AJ. I'm fascinated by him. I'm really surprised he hasn't done a lot of other films. He's kind of similar to Dash, where he's done things here and there, but I would say that in his filmography, like... Daughters of the Dust stands out the most. He At first he was a co-producer and then he became like a cinematographer on the film and he had really never worked on a film up to that point. He'd never shot on 35 millimeter. The interview with him is just really fascinating and he made a really good point about like, like why can't a black figure stand in for all of humanity the way that a white figure does? Like when we look at Michelangelo's David, that's the example he uses. David is used to represent all of humanity. But when you have a black figure or a, a black character in a film, they only represent black people. They don't represent all of humanity. And he felt like Daughters of the Dust was was doing something important in the way that it brought humanity to black people and really showed very universal struggles that a lot of people go through, right? The film is very specific to this culture culture, the Gullah culture, to the black community, black women. But you should be able to watch the film and also see yourself in it. And he talked about how a viewer like came up to him or something and she said that, oh, she didn't see color at all. That when she looked at Nana or something, she was reminded of her own grandmother. And AJ made a good point where he was like, Nana should be able to be black, right? You can acknowledge that she is black and you can also see your own grandmother in her. Like her, her blackness doesn't negate her humanity. She's both. She's black and she's a grandmother. And you can see your grandmother in a black woman, right? You can see the humanity in in the women in this film. You should be able to recognize both. That the women are African American, but they also may have struggles that you as a white person can relate to and that resonates with you. We shouldn't have to erase their race in order to humanize them or see ourselves in other people who are different from us. Because it's just not true that you don't see color. Of course you see color. We shouldn't pretend like we don't see it. We don't see race. It's about saying we are different races, but we also want to see the humanity in each other. I thought he made a good point about that. There was so much that happened on set. Like one of the lead actresses wanted uh, more money. She demanded more money and they were already, they already had a very low budget and they had to accommodate that. So that was a real headache for Julie Dash. And then there was a male actor on the set who was very disrespectful to her, but she did not back down and she did not let him intimidate her. So she had to deal with that. It was 28 days of shooting this film. The weather was bad. There were lots of insects and mosquitoes. It was a little bit of a nightmare on the location, but a lot of the people who worked on this film worked for nothing. They didn't make much money at all. They were passionate about this project and they really didn't care about being paid. They did it because they loved it. They did it because they knew this was a revolutionary, radical, important film. They knew it was special. The crew and the cast knew this film was special and they knew that they were creating something lasting and important. I don't know how you could not know it. I mean, it's just such a beautiful film. After the shooting was done, Julie Dash was exhausted 
absolutely exhausted after everything that she had went through. And not only that, but she had to be away from her own daughter that she had given birth to, you know, like a few years previously. So she had to be away from her daughter. She had to deal with people on the set and budget issues and just all of it. It was an exhausting experience. And then she had to edit it. She said she had like 200,000 feet of film that she had to go through at her house in 1990. So it was a labor of love. It was intense. (laughs) And she was so confident that she would get distribution and she didn't. She had to struggle even to get a distributor. People still didn't get it. I mean, she thought, well, now I've made the film. I can show people this finished product. They still didn't understand it. They still didn't get it. Eventually, though, Kino did distribute it. And when she was trying to find distributors, it was like her story was so different and didn't fit into the stereotypical stories about black life at that time that people just didn't understand it. That's why they didn't want to distribute it. There's not one kind of story. This is what Dash writes, quote, African Americans have stories as varied as any other people in American society, as varied as any other people in the world. Our lives, our history, our present reality is no more limited to ghetto stories than Italian Americans are to the mafia or Jewish Americans are to the Holocaust. We have so many, many stories to tell. It will greatly enrich American filmmaking and American culture if we tell them, unquote. I love that. There are so many different stories still to tell. And a lot of the stories that these distributors or these studios wanted to tell were based in the cities, right? And an urban black life. And here is Daughters of the Dust that's about the islands. You know, it's about the Gullah people. It's about a rural place around the waters and in the woods. It's rural, right? And they didn't know what to make of that. That was part of the struggle too, that she was telling a story that was different from the stereotypical stories about black people. But she wanted to break those stereotypes and she wanted to expand the range of stories that you could tell about black people. There are very important stories about urban black life. Just Another Girl on the IRT would be a really good example of that. Or the films of Spike Lee, like Do the Right Thing. Absolutely, we need to tell stories about urban black life. But there's also stories about rural black life, like Ramel Ross's Hell County This Morning, This Evening, which I'm going to be doing an episode about because I absolutely loved it. And it's set in Hell County, Alabama in a rural area, just as this film is set in a rural area on the sea islands off the coast of the Carolinas. We can tell it all right? We can have all these different stories. No one story should define an entire people, (laughs) you know, millions and millions of people. So eventually Kino distributed it. It went to the Sundance Film Festival in 1991. It won an award for best cinematography. Once Kino got involved, it got distributed in 1992. The film opened at Film Forum in New York and every single show was sold out for a really a good a good amount of time and Julie Dash has the distinction of being the first African-American woman filmmaker with a feature film in theatrical release. Now the first black woman to make a feature film would be Kathleen Collins with her film Losing Ground but Losing Ground did not get theatrical distribution. It was like a very small film. And I have an episode about losing ground. So Julie Dash is the first black woman to make a feature film and to have it shown in theaters, in movie theaters where people could go see it. And people would go and see it over and over again, especially black women. They loved this film. 
they they reacted to it very enthusiastically which doesn't surprise me at all it's such a gorgeous film and it's I revere this film and this film has such reverence and love for black women in it it doesn't it just doesn't surprise me at all and so it took until 1992 for a film by a black woman to even be in movie theaters and that was only around 30 years ago we still have such a long ways to go it's shocking it's very shocking that it took that long but this film is such an an accomplishment julie dash went through so much to get it made and to bring it into being and to birth it her this was her child this was her baby in a lot of ways and what she created is so important and so i'm really excited to talk all about this film with you now now i will talk all about daughters of the dust of the dust is going to be an easy film to talk about because it's one of those films where there's no plot really there's no particular narrative that's going on in the film and I think the way Dash described it was like it's a series of vignettes like a series of these kind of like little vignettes little stories at its most basic it's about the Pazant family that live on the Sea Islands of the South. It's set in 1902. It's on Ebo Landing. And I'll talk about Ebo Landing later on and the myth surrounding that place. It's about this family that has lived on this island for decades, probably. 1902, it's only been about 40 some years that slavery has been over they want to leave this island and go to the mainland of the united states and then head north and migrate north for i guess a better life better jobs better prospects and it's about the family coming together on the eve of leaving the island coming together having like a picnic on the beach getting together and it's going to be the last time that this family is whole and intact and together it's a simple story when you say that but dash did not create a simple film This is a complex film. It's a poetic film. I absolutely feel that this film is closer to like poetry or even dreams. It's very dreamlike. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Like when I was re-watching it, it felt like I was entering a dream. And those are my favorite movies, (laughs) to be honest with you. I absolutely love films where you're just in awe of them visually. And that's absolutely what Dash created. But she created something complex and a bit abstract and a bit just not conventional. It's not a conventional film. It is absolutely an art film. It is absolutely what we would call an art house film because of that poetry, that lyricism, that non-linear, languid beauty of the film, Um, the way that it unfolds, the way that it lingers on nature, the way that it lingers on just small moments like women on the beach, women getting their hair braided, women dancing, women gathering together and talking. There doesn't need to be some plot or some action or anything like that it's a deeply emotional film and poetic film and that's one of the reasons why I love it so much so I just want to give our cast 
mainly the, our cast are the women of the Pizant family. We have Nana, who is our matriarch, played by Coralie Day. We have Eula, played by Alva Rogers. Eula is pregnant. We have Yellow Mary, played by Barbara O. Yellow Mary has been away from the island for a long time, and she returns to see the family before they leave. There's Viola, played by Cheryl Lynn Bruce. She comes with Yellow Mary. She has always also left the island, and she tends to see the people of the island as backwards and things like that. There's Iona, played by Bonnie Turpin. There's Hagar, played by Casey Moore. Hagar is very aggressive at times. Like, she's very critical of Nana, very critical of uh, people who are not Christian and things like that. And there's also the unborn child, played by Kylan Warren. So that's that's our basic cast. It's the women. The women have the spotlight in this film. That's what I love about it. It's what so many viewers of the film love about it. It's what makes it so incredibly radical and rich and rewarding and important. So first, I'm going to go through the film and just talk about different themes and issues. And I'm really going to lean in and dig into that interview between Bell Hooks and Julie Dash. Because I think that they make so many important points and, and arguments and and just talk about so many fascinating aspects of this film. And that will be my guide uh, at, through the episode. Because I just, I want to dig into that. I want to expand on what they talked about. But first, I want to just talk about the visual beauty of this film because that is what took me over. This film, it has so much going on and it's so important in so many ways. It's a political film. It's an art film. It's a historical film. There's so much that it is and that it's doing. But also, just on the surface level, it's beautiful. And that beauty is also radical. And that beauty is also political, right? It's very radical to say black women are beautiful in this film when it was made in the in the 90s, right? It was powerful to say black women are beautiful. Dark-skinned black women are beautiful. You know, if we remember the Black Panthers movement, black is beautiful was one of the sort of mantras or mottos that came out of that. Black women got to see themselves as beautiful in this film. That is part of the beauty of it. And also the landscape is incredibly beautiful. Just everything about it. It is a visual feast of a film. And I just thought it was divine from the moment it started. I can't explain it to you. I have this love of films that were made like in the 80s and 90s. Not every film that was made in the 80s and 90s, but certain ones just give me this feeling and this emotion that completely connects me back to that era. Even though it's set at the turn of the 20th century, it just has this aesthetic beauty that reminds me of the 90s, of the late 80s and the early 90s. And I was born in 1989, and I'm very nostalgic for the 1990s. (laughs) It's a big problem for me. (laughs) I love the music. I love the movies from that time. I just love everything from the 90s, personally. The richness of this film, part of it was my nostalgia, that it just had this look that a lot of films in the 80s and 90s had, I don't know if it was because it was pre-digital, you know, it was on 35 millimeter, but something about films made by made back then have a look. And I feel like people who are more 
well versed in the technical stuff know why like maybe it was the cameras maybe it was the film stock I don't know but when I watch films from the 80s and 90s certain ones they just have this look about them it's like the light and and just something it's something mysterious that I can't put into words and Daughters of the Dust had that for me. So just something about it conjured the late 80s and 90s for me. So that where I almost felt in connection with my childhood a little bit. I don't know. I can't explain it. So the visual feast of this film is beautiful. The trees. I love trees. I'm a big fan of trees. I know that's so random. But the trees are so gorgeous in this film. And if you think of like the beach, there were all these trees laying on the ground. And sometimes the women would sit on them, right? Yeah, like I just love the trees. And and some of them looked like sort of like weeping willows. And I love that scene where um, Yellow Mary and Eula and Yellow Mary's companion, female companion, which was quite radical as well. There is the suggestion that this is Yellow Mary's lover, possibly, that they are in a relationship together. And that's pretty, that was pretty pushing the envelope for that time period, right? I don't think it's thought of necessarily as like a queer film, but that relationship is certainly there, right? And you see this intimacy between women in the film. I mean, they're related to each other, but I'm just saying like there's this beautiful intimacy and physical connection between the women in the film as well. But there's that beautiful scene where they're like sitting in the tree, you know, and it's just just glorious to look at. And like I said, the film is dreamlike. You just feel like you're entering this dream. You know, the the water, the beach, um, the sand, the trees, it, it just takes you over. And I feel like some films are a gift and this is one of them for me. The beauty, just looking at it, swept me away. Even though I've been having a hard time watching films, I was completely visually engaged in this film. The visuals of Daughters of the Dust remind me a lot of Merchant Ivory. I don't know if it gets compared to that, but if you think of like the Merchant Ivory productions, A Room with a View, for instance, Howard's End, Remains of the Day, Morris, right? Very sumptuous period pieces. That is what Merchant Ivory was known for, was that sumptuousness, that luxury. And even though this film had a low budget, those white dresses and that umbrella and there is just, maybe sumptuous isn't the right word, but there is just like, because there's not like a lot of luxury necessarily about it, but just the white dresses and the white sand and it's just like so beautiful. They're, the dresses themselves are so beautiful or I think there's this beautiful scene where they have like quilts or something that they're putting on the sand and they're like blowing in the wind and there's all these different fabrics and like when I think of the homes like there's paper on the walls and there's this scene of this beautiful flower. So the way that the even the homes are decorated or think of the bottle trees and there's just something just so incredibly beautiful about the art direction and the costumes and to me it evoked Merchant Ivory for me and also the paintings of Hakeem Saroya. He actually did quite a few paintings of women on beaches and I recently fell in love with Hakeem Saroya. It really happened more in 2019. I really want to get a book of his art but all of the all of the books of his art are so expensive. I mean it's expensive to me. I don't necessarily like to pay $30 
$100 for an art book. I, I don't have that kind of money. But I have just always wanted a book of his art because I love the colors and I love how so many of the paintings are set on beaches and women in these beautiful white or cream dresses usually on the beaches. And so when I saw Daughters of the Dust, I immediately thought of Soroya as well. I don't know if Dash was inspired by that or not, but those were some of the references, the visual references that came up uh, for me. And films like this really renew me as a cinephile and they remind me what's possible and how we can have really emotional experiences with films. I, I feel like Dash takes us into a whole other universe of feeling and imagination with this film. What she achieved through the story and also what she achieved visually is so important. And it cannot be overstated, the beauty of this film. Just the sea. I could have watched a whole film of just women lying on the beach. <laughs> like, seriously, I could have just watched that all day. Like, when the women, when uh, Yellow Mary and Eula and I think Yellow Mary's companion, when they're all together on the beach with that umbrella. It's a very iconic scene from the film, right? Um, but when they're all together like that, I could just watch that. I could just watch these women walk on the beach together in their beautiful dresses. And that would be a film for me. And that's kind of what Dash did. And that's kind of daring what she did. That's basically what this film is. You know, it's a family on a beach. It's beautiful black women walking on a beach or, or lying on a beach or, or like sitting on trees and just being in nature. And how many times do you even get to see that? How many, how many times do you see that in any film, let alone a film about black people or people of color, where they just get to be, right? They don't have to represent anything. They don't have to be doing anything. They can just live and exist and be. And isn't that a kind of freedom to just be, to just rest, to just sit on a tree and watch the ocean? How many times do we really get to see black people doing that? That's beautiful. And and Julie Dash put that out into the world. She put those images out into the world and she created those images of black people living, not black people being hurt or suffering or being harmed although obviously the ghosts of slavery haunt this film and they are an important part of the film particularly in the stains that are on the hands of the elderly people who were slaves and who worked on the indigo plantations where they dyed fabric I guess indigo I think Nana has some of those stains and other people in the family have those stains slavery is alive in in the mem in their memory and it is present in that way. We are aware of the suffering of black people through the scars on their hands, the stains on their hands, the indigo stains. But that's not what this film is about necessarily. It's so often or for a really long time when we got films about black people, it always had to be black people suffering, black people in pain, black people hurting. Is struggle and pain part of the black experience yes it is a unique part of the black experience the the slavery and the the effects of slavery the 
the ghosts and and all of that it's part of it but it shouldn't be the whole story it shouldn't be every single film that's made about black people is about them being harmed and bleeding and the thing is is that people tend to think oh well we have to show the suffering that's the only way we will humanize them like if you see people suffering then that will make you see them as human but not necessarily I also think there's something very powerful about seeing black people doing just going about their lives just living that's why I loved Cane River by Horace B. Jenkins which I mentioned earlier that film was so amazing and beautiful because it was about black people just falling in love with each other and it was set within a black, a predominantly black community. There were really no white people in the film. <laughs> they could just be themselves. Losing ground is very similar in that way too. It's not about pain or suffering. It's about a marriage with losing ground. And then with Cane River, it's about a young man and a young woman falling in love and starting a relationship. That's what those films are about. They're not about somebody having to bleed or suffer. I, I just, I have a problem when we constantly see black people in pain like that bothers me and I think about it like with the videos that have come out with police brutality I'm not saying those videos are not important and I know that they've sparked a lot of movements we need to have injustice recorded and those videos are very powerful evidence of harm and violence done to black people, of course. But what does it mean to like constantly see black people being choked, shot, you know, having the life taken out of them? You know, what does it mean to constantly be exposed to those images? Does that humanize black people to those who have already dehumanized them? I thought about this a lot too, when there was like this photo of a of a Mexican immigrant and his child that tried to come to the United States and they were found drowned and the photo was published. The thing is, is that we don't see white people that way. We don't see white people constantly being shot or drowned or, or violated and harmed, right? And, and so I understand why the image was published. I understand why like the George Floyd video was released and it upset people and of course or like Ahmaud Arbery that's horrific on every level. All these videos that have come out in 2020 have been horrific but I've thought a lot about like what does that mean that we're constantly being traumatized by seeing black people die. I understand the the importance of the videos and of course the movements that they fuel. I get that but we don't see white people dying on our feeds on Twitter necessarily, right? Like we don't see that. And so what does it mean to see that constantly? And and also what what is it like to be a black person and to see that on your feed? Like the trauma that that does to other black people. I don't have like really informative, uh, great thoughts about this. You know, there are other people who have written more extensively and done research. And, but I just have to raise these questions of like, what does it mean to always see black people dying and being violated and, and being traumatized and harmed? We are consuming that on a regular basis right? And that has an effect on us. It has an effect on other black people. And so I think something like Daughters of the Dust, like we need this representation. If we're only seeing death and we're only seeing violence, 
done against black people for you know it we see it often it's not everything that we're seeing but it's there it's very refreshing and beautiful to see a representation of black people that is about love and family and history and you know being on the beach and and living it's about black life instead of just black death. And again, I'm not saying those images are not important in terms of bearing witness to the crimes that are committed against black people by police and, you know, the crimes committed by the state against black people. We need that as evidence, right? Like we need that um, to get justice. And it's very brave when people take those videos with their phones. They're putting their own lives at risk. Or you think of like Eric Garner and all that. So I'm not saying those images are not, um, I guess, important. They're just traumatic. They're painful. And something like Daughters of the Dust gives us joy and beauty and love and family and a connection to history and the ancestors. And it gives us dream and it, it gives us other things right? And that's important too. And we need more representations like this as well. I really feel like Julie Dash has this very loving gaze that she puts on black people in the film, particularly black women, focusing on their faces, their dresses, their hands, their hair. She's really taking in the beauty of these women, giving this very loving gaze on the women in the film. So I want to dig into the bell hooks and Julie Dash interview because I just thought it was fascinating and I'll go by different themes that they talked about. One of the themes they talk about with Daughters of the Dust is the way this film is about the mythic and the imaginative rather than just history. The film while Julie Dash did a lot of research and she knows her history and she knows all about the Gullah people, right? The Gullah Geechee people. Not everything in the film is historically accurate and that's not what she was interested in. Like the stains, the indigo stains on the hands of the elders, that wasn't necessarily something that happened, right? Like you don't know if those indigo stains lasted for decades, but she wanted that in there as a symbol of slavery, as a powerful symbol of slavery. That instead of showing, you know, wounds on someone's back or other ways that I guess you would allude to slavery, that she wanted to use the indigo stains on the hands. And Bell Hook says that the film is uh, set within, quote, a much more poetic mythic universe, unquote. So while it's set in history, history is not static or stale in this film. History is alive. It's throbbing. It's it's pumping. It has blood. And it's not just about everything being historically accurate. It's also about using your imagination, going into myth, going into the dream. And Dash said something very interesting. She said, quote, Daughters of the Dust is like speculative fiction, like a what-if situation on so many different levels. Like, what if we could have an unborn child come and visit her family-to-be and help solve the family's problems? What if we had a family that had such a fellowship with the ancestors that they helped guide them, and so on, unquote. You're doing a disservice to the film when you just reduce it to a historical period drama, because it's going beyond history. It's taking us into the realm of imagination. Of course, an unborn child can't narrate a film, 
right? Like that's imaginative. That's something that can't happen. I guess you could almost say that's like magical realist maybe. I don't know. But Nana narrates the film and the unborn child. So she's mixing reality and dream, history and imagination. And I really love that. She she did her research. She knew everything she needed to know. But she also took artistic license. And she also took us into the realm of dream and what ifs and, and possibilities, right? That's the thing. Da- Dash is not necessarily giving us history as it exactly unfolded. She's giving us possibility, the undreamed what might have been or could be. And I think that's really important. This film is an imaginative space, a dreamlike space, for me at least. this, This was not about being a documentary. Bell Hooks mentions that. It's about imagination as well and myth. And Bell says this, she says, you were giving us a mythic memory. Dash is constructing history. She's redefining history, giving us that mythic memory. I loved that. We don't know if people at the turn of the 20th century really sat on the beach in beautiful dresses, right? Like, and sat on trees and all that. We don't know factually if that happened, but that's what Dash gives us. She gives us what she imagined, what she wanted to see, how she wanted black women to be represented, not necessarily how they were, how they lived exactly down to every detail. And Dash speaks to this tendency to only show black pain or to prioritize black pain over black love or black life or black black people doing all kinds of different things because they are human and they are part of the human condition and they have a range of feelings and experiences and they are complex people just like anybody, right? This is a quote from actually from Bell Hooks. Bell said, Quote, I think of the major problems facing black filmmakers is the way both spectators and often the dominant culture want to reduce us to some narrow notion of real or accurate. And it seems to me that one of the groundbreaking aspects of Daughters of the Dust, because it truly is a groundbreaking film, is its insistence on a movement away from dependence on reality, accuracy, authenticity, into a realm of the imaginative, unquote. A lot of films, what they wanted was black people suffering, urban life and, you know, violence and crime and and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's not what Julie Dash wanted to create. Yes, that's one aspect of, of some people's lives, that there is violence, there is crime wherever they may live. It's, it's there, it's part of the story, it's one story, but it shouldn't be the entire story. And she wasn't interested in that. She was interested in a different story. And a lot of people weren't ready for that. And I said that I would talk about the Ebo landing. And this is part of the mythic memory or the mythic part of the film is the legend of the Ebo people. Um, and this landing myth is crucial in the film. The Ebo people, they were brought from Africa to the sea islands and they were brought like on a slave ship. And the myth is that the Igbo preferred death to living in slavery. So when they found out they were going to be enslaved, they actually, instead of uh, getting off the ships and going onto the island and becoming slaves, 
they walked into the water and drowned themselves. They drowned their children and they drowned themselves. And Dash said that there are accounts of this, witness accounts from actual sailors who were there and they saw it. They saw them drown themselves and go into the water with their chains on, their shackles on. They preferred death to being enslaved. So Julie Dash is telling the story of a specific community of people on these sea islands, right? And the Ebo myth is very powerful for them. It's a very powerful symbol of probably their strength, their resilience, their resistance, right? Their resistance to, to enslavement and to oppression. And it resonates with people very deeply. Julie Dash said, quote, that message is so strong, so powerful, so sustaining to the tradition of resistance by any means possible that every Gullah community embraces this myth. So I learned that myth is very important in the struggle to maintain a sense of self and to move forward into the future, unquote. That's why the Igbo myth was so crucial in the film, is that it's about a connection to the past, a connection to ancestors, and to people who resisted oppression and resisted enslavement. And so it's a symbol of perseverance, I think, for the Gullah community. So that's an aspect of the film that maybe doesn't get talked about as much is that it is engaging in myth and imagination. And it's not just about that historical accuracy. It's about going beyond history and getting to something much richer and much deeper about about the black community on these sea islands, right? And about their connection to history. And Bell Hooks uh, said something interesting about this film that it's both an art film and a political film. It really mixes the two. I mean, when you're watching it, I don't know if you're necessarily really conscious of it being political. The very fact that it exists makes it political. And the very fact that it centered black women made it inherently political. That's a political thing. In a world that, that denigrates black women, that oppresses black women. Anytime you have a positive portrayal, a loving, complicated, complex portrayal of black women, that's sort of inherently radical, inherently political. Any group, you know, any group that is dehumanized and attacked or put down and oppressed, anytime you have a positive representation of them and you show them as human and you show them as complex, right, that's a political statement, even if you don't mean to make that political statement. Like it kind of reminds me of Patricia Cardozo's Real Women Have Curves. I think about that in that Patricia was trying to tell a story about, you know, a young woman, a young Latina woman coming of age, working at a sewing factory. But just the act of telling a story about Latinos, about a Latino family in the kind of context that we're living in, the times we're living in. I mean, that was back in the early 2000s. But even back then, Latino and Hispanic people and Mexican people were very dehumanized and they still are. 
in telling that story and showing a Latino family and all that, that was political. And that's a great film. I absolutely love that film. And so I think Daughters of the Dust does something similar. Bell Hooks said, quote, it creates a new kind of art film because it clearly can be seen as an art film, but also as a progressive political intervention. There are images of black people in this film, images of us as we've never seen ourselves on screen before, unquote. And that is powerful. When you are part of some kind of marginalized group and you don't see yourself represented much in, in popular culture and the media, or you do see yourself represented, but in very negative ways. Think about how Muslim or Arab people are often cast as terrorists or something like that. When you never see yourself represented and then all of a sudden <laughs> you see something where you are portrayed as, as human and complex and worthy of respect and love and, and all of these things, that can be very powerful for your own self-image. I would imagine that when black women, and I'll talk about um, black women as spectators of this film in a little bit. It won't be too long. I would imagine that when they saw this representation, that was very powerful for them. I mean, I know that when I've seen some of my own struggles represented on the screen or on a TV show, that has made me feel um, empowered or made me feel seen or understood. And like, wow, something, something I've been through or some part of me is represented in a really beautiful way or a humanizing way. I know that that had an effect on me. It's an art film all the way but it's also political because of the subjects of the film. And the subject is black people and more specifically black women. And so it does both of those things at once. And I really want to dig into this, um, this theme of the film centering black women as both subjects and spectators. It puts women squarely in the middle, like with Nana, our matriarch. I guess Dash could have had a man be the center and be the patriarch, but she decided that it wanted to be Nana. And we have Eula, who's pregnant, and her husband Eli. And we have that whole plot of her having been raped. And I'll talk about the representation of rape in a little bit. And then we have Yellow Mary, who's come back to the islands, and she's not particularly, like, well thought of in the family. They don't really love her. They look down on her, and they think she's beneath them and all of that. There's a lot of different plots going on in, in the film, as I said. You've got Eula and Eli dealing with her rape. You've got Nana, as an elderly woman and a matriarch of her family, having to say goodbye to these people that she loves. And knowing that, of course, they're trying to have a better life and they want more, but she has to lose them and like the grief of that and the pain of that for her. And you can tell that it really affects her. I'll talk more about Nana in a little bit, but she's very connected to the family. She's connected to the past. She's connected to the land. She is such a crucial character in the film, right? And she narrates some of it along with the unborn child. The unborn child is really important. A little a little girl, a little black girl. We don't just see black women in this film. We see black girls. 
We see black girls dancing and laughing and playing and having their hair braided. And we see their joy as well. I've read some stuff about how black girls, they tend to be sexualized at very early ages. And they tend to also be, um, to be seen as more adult than they actually are. And they're treated badly because of that. They're almost seen as like little adults. They're not allowed to be children. They are, I think they have higher rates of like disciplinary actions against them and just really terrible things. Then that affects them and that affects their lives. They're not allowed to be children They're not, and that, the same would go for black boys as well. I mean, you think of like something like Trayvon Martin, where he's just, he's a teenager. He's just a teenage boy and he ends up being killed by George Zimmerman. There, or Tamir Rice. Remember when Tamir Rice was killed by a police officer because he was playing with a toy gun? You know, a white child playing with a toy gun is going to be treated very differently than a black child playing with a toy gun. It's important to talk about how black children and particularly black girls are not allowed to be kids. They're they're not allowed to make mistakes and be complicated and, and things like that. They're just, they're disciplined more harshly. They're treated more harshly and all kinds of different things. It's really beautiful to see black girls happy and playing and dancing and and having their hair done and just all kinds of things that children should be able to do like there's an innocence about them and I don't know if always black children are given that innocence or are seen as innocent right they're because of racism it's they're already criminalized even as children and that is just terrible you know and that should not happen so we see black women and we see black children represented in this film and there's Iona she's in love with with a Native American boy and I'll talk about that in a little bit as well so there's a lot of different plot points in the film a lot of different things going on so we see black women we see very diverse experiences of black women we see an older black woman in Nana We see a black woman dealing with the trauma of a rape in Eula. We see love, you know, being in love with Iona. So there's a lot of different like diverse um, experiences for black women in this film. But it was really important to Julie Dash to center black women and to put men really on the margins and on the periphery. And I think I think that is very, very radical. Any film that doesn't put men at the center of it is pretty radical, I think. She really wanted to take us into women's lives and into a woman's world. And I love that. Dash, not only did she center black women in the film, She centered black women as spectators of the film. And I think that's really important. Black women were her primary audience (laughs) when she was making the film. And she says this quote, I wanted black women first, the black community second, white women third. That's who I was trying to privilege with this film and everyone else after that. I thought that was fascinating. She didn't make this for a white audience. I mean, so uh, that's been a big problem with films that are about black people is that there's always a white savior. You think of like a lot of films about the civil rights movement where it's about a white person. You think, I mean, the help is a really good example of that. Or Mississippi burning or A Time to Kill. A Time to Kill is not set during the Civil Rights Movement, but it has 
black people in it. But the main characters of mainstream Hollywood films tend to be white people, always. Even when the film is about uh, black people, the, the white person is always the hero, the protagonist. And in that way, when white audiences watch those films, white audiences are not being asked to identify with the black people in the film. They're being asked to identify with the white person and the white savior. And Daughters of the Dust does something very different. And it's about the black spectator and the black female spectator. But I want to say that even though dash centers black women as the spectators even if you are white even if you are a white woman i think you should still see this film i think it's important to watch films about people who are different from you and have different experiences than you so even even if a film wasn't made for you it wasn't you know you weren't in their minds when they were creating it i still think it's important to see it Sometimes that's a big problem with films is that people don't actually want to like seek out films where they're not centered or something. I don't know how to put it. They seek out films about people who are like themselves. And I'm not saying I don't ever do that or something. Like, of course I do. You know, of course I watch films about white people. But I try, I want to watch Cane River. I want to watch Daughters of the Dust. I want to watch Eve's Bayou. I want to put myself in somebody else's universe for a little while and see what life is like for them. I want to see their story. I try to do that. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. Not saying I do it constantly. But it is something I'm aware of and that I try to do when I'm watching films, right? But not everybody does that. Not every cinephile or film person does that. And Julie Dash made this really good point, And it, this was like a wow moment for me. When I was reading this interview, it was like a wow moment the whole time. Julie Dash said, I think a lot of people are severely disturbed by the film because they're not used to spending two hours as a black person, as a black woman. Unquote. And this really struck me because when we watch a film, we are putting ourselves in another reality for a time. And what does it mean to not enter the world of black women, to have it absent from your life as a film goer, as a cinephile, to ignore that world and not engage with it? I think we are lacking something if we do that. If you've not seen Losing Ground, if you've not seen Cane River, if you've not seen Hell County this morning, this evening, if you've not seen Daughters of the Dust, you are missing out on something. If you're not seeking out films about black women or about groups that are different from you, there's going to be a poverty in your life and a deprivation, I think. You should want to enter that reality. You should want to enter that world of black women. Why would you not want to? And what does it mean when we live in a culture that completely ignores the world of black women? Is it getting better? Yeah. I mean, obviously. There there are black women directors now. Dee Reese comes to mind. Quite a few are working now 
So there, there are some more opportunities. It's not necessarily where it could be, though. I thought that was really powerful to say that. That's also what makes the film radical, is that for almost two hours, you have to see the world through the lens of black women. You have to enter their subjectivity. You have to leave your own subjectivity and enter their subjectivity. And that's powerful because usually the films we watch, the only subjectivity that we that we really identify with are white men. A lot of us, women included, myself included, we know what it's like to identify ourselves in white men. We're used to that. You know, white men are the default. They're seen as universal. Their experiences are seen as universal and representative of the human condition. Women's are not seen that way. Black women's are not seen that way. Black men's experiences are not seen that way. And so it's very powerful to watch a film like Daughters of the Dust and to sort of suspend your own subjectivity and to enter the subjectivity of the of black women, of Nana and Eula and Iona and Yellow Mary, yeah, and Viola and and all of the women in this film. And I think it's a very powerful thing to do that and it can build a more complex sense of the world. It can build empathy, it can build compassion right? For people who are different from you. I'm not saying the film is didactic or like, it's not about teaching you something. It's about telling a story. It's, it's important to always seek out films about people who are different from you, I think. And it's not like women, it's not like black women had not been represented. Like, of course, there were films and TV shows before Daughters of the Dust, right? Some of them were positive. Many of them were very negative, very negative representations like the Mammy or or things like that that are that were associated with black women. Really horrible, horrible stereotypes, especially in old Hollywood, right? Like in the studio system and some of the classic Hollywood films. People saw those images. They saw negative images. So there was an absence of, you know, positive representations of black women. And so Julie Dash gave black women themselves on screen. And she said that they were starved for it. She said that women would come up to her and say, I was so starved for those images. They had never seen them before. They had not seen black women in beautiful dresses lying on the beach or sitting in a tree. That wasn't part of the universe of images in their head about what was possible for a black woman. And so Julie Dash gave them that. They saw, when they saw the women in this film, they saw really complex women like Nana is so complicated. She is going to miss her family. She doesn't want them to leave. She's very rooted to the island itself. Like she has to lose her freaking family. Like the despair and the pain of that. But she desperately wants them to stay connected to their ancestors and to history. And they seem so impatient to let go of history some of them, you know, like Viola or Hagar, for instance, they want to let all of that go. They see that as old fashioned or superstitious and backwards. And then in Eula, you see a woman, you know, who's pregnant and who was raped, right? And who's dealing with Eli, her husband and his anger. He wants to know who raped her and she won't tell him who did it. So there's a rupture in that relationship 
between the two of them. You have the unborn child who's narrating it and her relationship to the family and her watching them and telling their story. You have Iona who's very in love and doesn't want to leave the young man that she's in love with. And you have Yellow Mary returning to really her homeland, her home island, and having to deal with uh, people's judgment of her. There's just all these different fascinating representations, complex representations of black women that don't fit any of the stereotypes that have been perpetuated in films and television shows. These are women who are so human and so complex and so real and authentic. I mean, they just breathe on screen. You could reach out and touch them. They are so real to you on the screen and just so wondrous and beautiful. Absolutely stunning to look at as well. And something that Bell Hook said, I absolutely love this quote. I would say that the challenge for the audience is to be able to see and see and see again this film until they acquire the apparatus to embrace it. Because the film is so subversive in its requirement that we look at the black female and the image of black people in general, unquote. The thing is, is that Some people didn't know what to make of this film. You know, they didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know what this was. They lacked the apparatus to understand it. It was so foreign to them. It was so different from them, you know, the women in this film. And they're not being asked to occupy the subjectivity of black women. People didn't know what to make of it at times. So the film struggled in that way because people had never seen anything like it before. But that's what made it so groundbreaking. I mean, if you think about the word groundbreaking, breaking ground, once this film exists and is out there, it creates ground. It creates a path for the films that will follow it. That's why Dash was a pioneer. That's why she was so important is that once people saw Daughters of the Dust, then it would make it a little bit easier for the next black female filmmaker and whatever film she wanted to make because people had already seen these images that had been put out into the world. And so maybe it wouldn't be so shocking when they came across another film about black women or black people because they had seen this film. But I love that idea of like, if you don't understand something, then keep watching it. Keep looking, keep asking questions. If you don't understand it, I think we kind of have this tendency to like when we don't understand something or when it wasn't made for us or something to just give up on it, to not even try to understand a different perspective or a different way of making a film. Like that's the thing too with Dash. She was not making your conventional Hollywood narrative film. She was making something different from that. So people were also uncomfortable with the film for that reason. Not just that it centered black women, but also that it's being told in a more artistic way in a more poetic way. I kind of talked about this with my episode on The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick, another film that's very poetic and lyrical and kind of abstract and has no narrative and is not linear. People don't always know what to make of it. Sometimes you have to sit with mystery. Sometimes you have to sit with not knowing or not understanding everything. Sometimes you have to just enter the rhythm of a film. This film has a beautiful rhythm. And they did that purposely in the film where they would, they would uh, film things at different speeds 
So sometimes there are parts of the film that are like in slow motion. Sometimes they're a little bit faster. They wanted to play with time in the film as well. So there's a different even rhythm to this film. I feel like this film is almost like a mood. It's like an atmosphere. It's something that you just enter into. It's a dream that you enter into. And I don't say that with every film. I think I said it about Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura. That's another film where I feel like it's a mood. <laughs> it's just you kind of go with it. You kind of go with the flow and the rhythm of that film and the feel of that film. It's, it's a film that's very dependent on the images. And I think Daughters of the Dust is the same way. The imagery, you know, is so rich and poetic and lyrical. You just have to enter into it. You just have to surrender to it. Surrender to the rhythm and the poetry and I think you'll understand it better. I think maybe it's a film that you have to feel. It's it's a feeling this film or it's made of feelings and it's a dream, you know, like it's literally dreamlike in that way. Right? I think you have to feel it, right? You just feel those images. That's what cinema is to me. It's it's like feeling images. <laughs> in a way. I don't know if that makes any sense. But if you don't understand something, it's like people just want to like put it down or turn away from it. And it's like, if you don't understand it, keep trying, you know, keep expanding, you know, your mind, keep expanding, you know, what's possible. Julie Dash really wanted to define how black women were seen on screen. It, she wanted to show the beauty of black women. That was very important to her. She said, quote, extreme close-ups and different angles, exactly where the light is caressing them rather than assaulting them, where the makeup is flawless, very natural makeup, but flawless, where the women look attractive, appealing, unquote. And my Lord, this film is beautiful. And the women in the film are so incredibly gorgeous. Yellow Mary, I was entranced by her. The flowers on her veil, the lattice on her dress. I loved the lace um, period costumes and the outfits that the women wore. I was in love with it, in love with the way the women looked. And you would get beautiful close-ups of the women and their skin was beautiful. And you'd get close-ups of, close of their hands and their hair and everything about them. And it was just like reveling in the beauty of black women. Had such reverence for them as well. You could just feel the love <laughs> in the lens. There was a love in the lens. That I think that's what Dash was doing. A loving gaze on black women. And I'm sure it was also in a way like a tribute to the black women in Dash's own life. Maybe her mother, her grandmother, women that she knew. She wanted to honor those women, honor those lives and make them, and just make them look beautiful. I mean, I know maybe it sounds kind of shallow, but if you think about it up until that, up until that point, like maybe black women didn't get to see that very much. I mean, of course they got to see Dorothy Dandridge, who was very glamorous. There were black actresses and black women who were glamorous and beautiful. Eartha Kitt comes to mind as well. But this film is just on another level. It's an ethereal beauty. It's like an otherworldly beauty, a dreamy beauty of black women in this film. Another theme that Julie Dash and Bell Hooks touched on was Christianity and religion in the film. I'm not going to go too deep into this theme, but it is part of it. And Bell Hooks made a really good point that some people don't realize that there were a lot of different religions in the black community. I mean, we tend to just think of uh, Christianity as particularly Protestantism, like like Baptists and things like that, that were very important 
important in the black community and the black church. But Islam is also part of the black community. And we see that represented in the film. There's a character who's who's Muslim. Some of the women, especially Viola, think that Christianity is the only acceptable religion and that any other religion is less than. And so you see some of that judgment like in the character of Viola. I just wanted to touch on it. It's in there. We don't often see black Muslims in films, right? Like it's not a common thing. And for it to be 1991, 1992, when people saw this film, it's pretty interesting, you know, to have different religions represented in the film that way, kind of ahead of its time. Something that I really also liked about the film and another theme is this conflict between between the rural and the urban. That's something that always interests me. I live in the rural South. I have pretty much my entire life and I'm always drawn to films that are first of all about the South and this is a vision of the South. This film is. It's an unconventional image of the South. We we don't tend to see the Gullah people or the Sea Islands off the coast of the Carolinas this way but it's part of the South and it's rural. You know they're on the beach and it's very connected to the land and the landscape. You know there are forests in this film and, and the sea and trees and nature is incredibly present in this film and very beautiful. And that's one of the things that I love about living in a rural area. Like I feel really connected to that myself. I feel connected to trees and meadows and grass and the big sky and all of that. That's a big part of like my soul. A big part of who I am is growing up in that kind of environment, living in that kind of environment. I love nature. I find solace and consolation in nature. So I value the rural. It's very important to me. And I do seek out films that are about the rural South or about rural communities. And the film looks at that conflict and Bell Hooks said, quote, the struggle between the agrarian life and the migration to the city. No one talks about the psychic loss that black people experienced when we left the agrarian South to move to the industrialized North. The point is you can't talk about the psychic loss if you don't acknowledge that there was something rich there in that rural agrarian experience. And it seems to me that a lot of people were deeply moved by Daughters precisely because it addressed the agrarian experience of black folk, unquote. This is actually a compelling part of the film to be to me that maybe doesn't get as much attention is the thing is is that the Pazant family is leaving the island, is leaving that rural agrarian life to go to the industrialized north, to the cities of the north, the urban environments of the north on the mainland. It just is always frustrating to me when cities and urban areas are seen as better They're seen as um, having more opportunity, more value. They're more civilized. They're um, more important. When, When we talk about this divide between the rural and the city or the rural and the urban, there's a value judgment usually that the city is better, that the rural has connotations of being backwards, of being less than, of being something that you want to flee that you want to get away from. And I like how this film, I mean, I don't think it's explicit necessarily, but it's, I think it's there. Of like, look what they're losing. 
Like the film is gorgeous. The film is not set in a city. The film is set in this landscape of the sea islands. And that is part of the gorgeous aesthetic beauty of the film is the ocean and the sand and the trees and the nature and the beauty of that rural landscape. That is what this family is going to lose. Not just Nana. It's not just going to fracture them you know, and separate them as a family. And they're also losing like a connection to their homeland or the land where they grew up, right? Like, why don't we see that as a loss? Why are we so obsessed with like progress and this idea that all migration is good? It's like, well, what are they leaving behind? What is lost? What are they giving up to do that? To find better jobs or whatever they're doing to migrate to the north. We never talk about the loss of that, the loss of that land, the loss of the beauty of nature and what that does for the soul, the psychic pain of that. That's what Bell Hooks is trying to get at. And Bell Hooks herself, as far as I know, kind of lives in a rural area like in Kentucky. And I think she grew up in the rural South. So she's very acutely aware of the power of nature, the power of the rural. And I just get frustrated with, I get frustrated with the idea of like, oh yeah, of course you should want to leave. You know, you should want to go North or you should want to go to the city. Like life only exists in the cities. You can have a fulfilling life in rural areas. The problem is that a lot of rural areas in the country now don't have the same funding. They don't have hospitals. They don't have jobs. There is poverty. There is drug dependency and addiction because of the despair and a lot of, you know, hardship. And it does feel like rural areas are overlooked or they're put down or they're seen as backwards. You know, my accent tells you where I'm from. You know, my accent tells you that I'm most likely rural and that I live in the South. And my accent, the very way that I talk, is seen as less than usually in this country. Just the way that I speak and people who speak like me and talk like me are seen as unintelligent and backwards, right? Made fun of in movies and TV shows because we're Southern, you know, or we're from a rural area in the south so it's put down but it's like I love how Julie Dash has like reverence for the rural in this film and shows you the beauty of that landscape and the beauty of that life that the peasants have with each other like my god that picnic on the beach is so wondrous and so sublime to see the peasant family together and to see the beautiful quilts they're sitting on and and the women spending time together and this is the last time that they're going to be a whole family. I mean, it's really heartbreaking if you think about it. So I like that that's acknowledged in the film. Yeah, they're going north and I guess they'll make more money and I guess they'll have a better life and more opportunities, but they're not going to have that beach. (laughs) They're not going to have what they had on that island on Ebo Landing. And it's also a connection to their ancestors. It's a connection to the people who lived on that island and died on that island. Connection to family and to their people. I guess you would see it as progress or a good thing that they're going to the city or they're going to the north. But for me, it's more of like, what are they losing? I see it more in the sense of like a loss. As I said earlier, the character of Iona has a relationship with a Native American young man named St. Julian Lastchild. In the discussion between Julie Dash and Bell Hooks, they talked about how Native American people 
often had relationships with African-American people and how that doesn't really get acknowledged or talked about. And they said that Daughters of the Dust was like the first black filmmaker to have a Native American character in their film and to show the relationship between Native American people and and African-American people. So no black filmmaker until then had had a Native American character in their film. And she wanted to show that. She wanted to um, show the life of Native American people through this particular character and his relationship with Iona. And in the end, Iona leaves with him. She sacrifices and risks a lot to be with him. And they kind of have this really strong uh, connection and love for each other. And she gets on that horse and she rides away. <laughs> and that's what she wants to do. It's a really beautiful part of the film, I think, where she she takes that chance. She takes that risk. As I said um, earlier, also, Eula was raped. And that's a big plot point between her and Eli. And he's mad that she won't tell him who raped her. So black women on screen, rape has been part of some of the storylines for them. But Dash was not interested in showing black pain necessarily in that way in like a you know exploitative or pornographic way she was more interested not in showing the rape or showing that violence but in showing the way a black woman deals with the trauma of a rape the after effects of an of a sexual assault like the word rape is not even said in the film when Eli's talking about it he says that a man was riding Eula as though it was consensual, when of course it wasn't, right? So they don't even say the word rape in the film. Because there's a film, there's a scene where Eli's talking to Nana about the rape. He doesn't say rape. He says that, that Eula was riding another man or something like that. He says that he can't even stand to look at Eula. But Nana is telling him that Eula doesn't belong to him. That Eula can't be owned by him. That she's not an object. You know, in many ways in that scene, Nana is affirming the humanity of Eula and saying, this woman is her own. She doesn't belong to you. You don't own her. She's equal to you. That's also something very radical about this film, right? The women are not going to be subjugated by the men in this film. They have their own voices, their own desires, their own lives, all of that. And they're not going to let men determine their fates or determine their lives. Like that's a really important aspect of this film that we see black women with agency. We see black women with independence black women with autonomy, whether it's Eula standing up against Eli, you know, or Nana telling Eli, this woman isn't an object that you own, or if it's Yellow Mary with her female companion and possible lesbian lover, or it's Iona running off with the man that she wants to be with. These are women with agency. These are women who are active participants in their own lives. They're not silenced. They have opinions, they have voices, they let you know what they think about things. These are women with agency. And I think that makes it a feminist film as well. It's obviously a black film, but I would say it's also a feminist film because of the representations of the women in this film and the complexity. And you see that in the handling of of the rape, the rape storyline and the relationship between Eula and Eli. Another big, big part of this film is the connection with ancestors 
and the past. And I think this is one of the most powerful aspects of the film is, in particular, I think Nana represents this the most. Uh, As the matriarch, as an elderly woman, she's deeply connected to the past and to ancestors. I mean, even something like the bottle trees. Julie Dash in an interview talked about the importance of the bottle trees when it comes to the black community and black people who have these. Like she said that a lot of people use blue bottles, but I think people use different kinds of bottles. And you put a name on each bottle of a person in the family who's died or an ancestor or something like that. And then you put the bottles, you know, on the tree branches. And then in the morning when the sun hits the bottles and if the tree is really close to your house, you'll see the the shadow or whatever of of those bottles, the light of those bottles on your house. It's about protection, but it's also remembering the past, remembering the people that you've lost. And so the past is very present. And remember when Viola at the beginning of this, the film says what's past is prologue. The past is crucial in this film and the connection to the past is important. The Pizants can't know themselves as a family in the present moment of 1902 without knowing their past and what they've been through and what they've survived and their ancestors. And that's really important to Nana. And she puts that in them that like the ancestors are important. She even tells that to Eli. I think when he's talking about Eula's rape, call on the ancestors. The ancestors will help you. And when I saw the bottle trees, I was reminded of this painting by Alison Saar. She's the daughter of Betty Saar. And I did a project about Alison Saar when I was in college for a class I took. And I was so enraptured by her art. And I really love it. She has this beautiful painting of a woman. And like there are branches, I think, coming out of her head. And then there's bottles on the branches. And so when I saw Daughters of the Dust, I was reminded of that Alison Saar image. I definitely recommend her art. It's so good. And she her art is about Black history and Black women. It's really wonderful. Nana knows that when the family leaves the island, life is going to be hard. Like she says, the North isn't necessarily like a land of milk and honey. And she really implores Eli to remember the ancestors and to connect with them because the ancestors will be their source of strength. So I, that's something I love about the film is it really celebrates having a connection to the past and remembering the people that came before you and remembering their struggles. And, and some of the women put Nana down for that, that she's too much a part of the past. She can't live in the present. She isn't modern enough. You have that rural city divide, but I think you also have that tradition and modernity divide as well. And Nana is seen as like not being modern enough. And she has too many memories, too much baggage as one person describes it. I mean, I think even the unborn child sort of ties into the ancestry theme a little bit. Because the as the child is narrating the film, she talks about the ancestors. And this child, it's such an interesting device that Julie used. You don't really know what to make of it. I don't think I've come across a film where an unborn child is the narrator, right? She hovers like a ghost 
but obviously she's not a ghost. She hasn't been born yet. When we see her throughout the film, we're almost seeing like this foreshadowing of her life that she will eventually live. She's in the womb, right? But she can feel everything that's happening. She's in the womb when all of this is happening. And so it's like she can feel it. She can feel the energy or the vibrations of what's happening outside the womb, what's happening to Eula, intimately connected to her mother's body and her mother's psychology and experiences by being in the womb. So she's connected to the world even before she's part of it. And there's this powerful scene when Eula is at at Ebo Landing and we see that um, statue or something in the water. That's a really beautiful scene actually. And Eula is telling her child, telling the unborn child in her womb about the Igbo and how they arrived in America on the slave ship. They refused to be slaves and instead drowned themselves in the water. So the thing is, is that Eula is keeping the ancestors alive by telling their stories. And she's telling the stories of the ancestors, even when her baby is in the womb, almost as a way to almost like implant that knowledge into that baby before she's even born. So Eula is a lot like Nana. Eula is connected to the past. She remembers the stories of the past and the stories of the ancestors. And she's going to keep that alive through the unborn child. And when that child is born, that daughter is born, she will carry on those memories of the Igbo and of the ancestors and their struggles and their triumphs. And she will have a connection to the past because of her mother Eula and the stories that she was told as a child. There's a very powerful scene of Nana. She's talking about how she wants there to be this connection between those who go to the north and those who stay on the island. Nana is going to stay on the island. She can't leave. She's way too connected to it and it's such a big part of her identity I think. And she says of the family she says they're from the sea or she doesn't say of the family she says of like the ancestors and and the family that they're from the sea They came there in chains and they have to survive. So Nana feels that deep connection to the past, to the land, to her family, and to her ancestors. And she's crying and she's struggling to let the family go. And there's that moving scene where they, you know, some of the women hug her and she struggles with it that she has to say goodbye to them. And Eula stays on the island and the baby, I think, is born shortly before Nana dies. And Yellow Mary stays on the island as well. But everybody else leaves it. And we see them leave. We see Iona leave as well. She goes off with her man. <laughs> I want to be Iona, I think. I want to get on the horseback and ride into the sun <laughs> with uh, with my man, right? <laughs> so I love that ending. I love that. So that's that's a lot of the film. I mean, I've talked about as much as I think I can, but I did want to touch on the critical reaction to the film when it was released. Critics just didn't understand this film. I think that the inability of critics to understand it is maybe what hindered its ability to be bigger. Like it could have been a bigger film. It probably should have been a bigger film. And you wonder how much more Dash could have done with her career if the film had been allowed to be as big as it should have been. It made a couple million dollars. It did well at Film Forum when it was released. And it did go to theaters, of course. But I think this is a classic. 
I think this is a classic of American cinema. I have no problem calling it a work of art and a masterpiece. And I was on IMDb, the internet database, looking. I, I was just kind of, I was just on there doing research. And it has a rating of 6.6 .6 out of 10. I was like, what? That shocked me absolutely shocked me. For a film this rich and poetic and beautiful and meaningful and important, you're gonna, it's gonna have a 6.6. .6. It should be, okay, to me it's a 10 out of 10. At least it should be in the 8, 8 or 9 category for me. I, I would give it 10 out of 10 personally. So critics had trouble with it. They didn't understand it. Something that Dash had to do that, you know, other filmmakers don't have to do. She really had to educate the critics and, and try to help them understand the film. She gave them like a press kit and in the press kit was information about the Gullah people and her intentions for the film and all kinds of stuff so that they could understand it better. But it still, it had trouble. It just had trouble. And I think it reminds us that as cinephiles, as viewers of film, we need to try harder to engage with art about people who are different from us. And we need to understand that our viewpoint is not the only one. Because when the white critics watched it, they didn't get it. But when the black women, the black spectators, went to see the film, they got it. They got it. They didn't necessarily need everything explained to them. They didn't need some kind of special kit to get this film. They understood it. So one viewer didn't get it, other viewers did. It may have affected the success of the film, possibly. I mean, the afterlife of the film is interesting because it's very well regarded now. And it is critically acclaimed. And Beyonce has honored it in Lemonade, right? It has this big life. And I think it is revered. I mean, I revere it. People are still discovering it and falling in love with it. And I think that, you know, Dash goes around to universities that show it, right? Like in retrospectives and I'm sure she does Q and A's and I'm sure people come up to her during those viewings and love what she did. I think it's a masterpiece. I said that. She's in this very strange position where she's created this film that's so lauded and so highly respected. It got a restoration for its 25th anniversary. It's being distributed by Cohen Media Group on a Blu-ray. You know, it streams on different places and, and Beyonce gave it attention. And yet she still struggles as a director. She still has not been given the opportunity, opportunities that she should have had. In some ways she's lauded and exalted and put on a pedestal for creating this film but then nobody wants to step up and make it so that she can create a lot more films. I mean, I think Julie Dash made one of the most beautiful films I've ever laid my eyes on. And yet she was not allowed to make more films like that. Not exactly like Daughters of the Dust, but what I mean is to make other films that she authored, that she wrote, that she created, that she had control over every facet of it, and that she could she could realize her vision for whatever film she wanted to make. And to me, it's a crime and it enrages me. I feel like she should have been making a film every year or every other year, or however many years it 
took her to make each film. All of this time has passed, almost 30 years, and she should have been realizing her artistic vision and her genius that entire time. Yes, she's going to be doing the Angela Davis biopic. I'm very happy about that. But all these decades that she could have been building a body of work, and that didn't happen. After she made this beautiful film, those opportunities did not pour in for her the way they probably should have. And I think we've been robbed as a result. You know, I think that I wonder what what else she could have created. I mean, yes, she created this masterpiece and that will live on. It will always be beloved. It will always be exalted and, and people will love it forever. But what about the other things that she might have wanted to create and the other stories that she might have wanted to tell? And, and she wasn't allowed to do that because of racism and sexism the way those things intersected in her life. She definitely should have been given so many more opportunities. And I can only hope going forward, you know, with the Angela Davis biopic that more things come to her because she deserves it. I love her vision. She fought like hell to get this film made and she did an excellent job. I hope that I did it justice. It's a beautiful film. It's it's an unconventional kind of abstract poetic film, but it has so much richness in it about black women, about family, about ancestors, about so many things, right? That conflict between the rural and the urban, like there's so much there. And so when you watch it, you'll see so much. You'll see maybe your own family, your own grandmother. Like I loved when the girls were having their hair braided. I saw a few scenes like that. I remembered when my grandmother braided my hair. My grandmother used to French braid my hair. And so when I saw that in the film, I remembered my own grandmother doing that. I think the film can even, can activate your own memories and think about things with your family. So there's just so much there, so much beauty. I loved every minute of watching it. And I'm sure it'll be one of those films that I rewatch and I go back to because that's, I think, the one of the the measures of a great film, of a work of art, is that you want to go back to it. As soon as I finished it, I wanted to restart it. Like, I just wanted to enter that world of the Sea Islands and the Pazant family. And I wanted to be on that beach. I wanted to be sitting in that tree. I wanted to be in, in the nature with Yellow Mary and Eula. I wanted that. Like, it's one of those films, like, you want to be part of it. You want to, like, merge with it. I mean, that's what I love about like beautiful films. Like I just get like intoxicated by them where I just want to like be in that film. I want to be part of it. The beauty and all of that and the dream of it. It really, really moved me and reminded me why I love cinema. That was a real gift to me. I think this film is a gift to the world. I just love it. (laughs) I hope you can tell how much I love it. I'm really glad I talked about it and I hope you feel like I did it justice. So... I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.